Konnichiwa, my friends. Thanks for tuning in to Master Samurai Tech Radio. This is a podcast for appliance techs by appliance techs. Today is October 17th, 2015, and this is episode 11. We're your hosts, Samurai Appliance Repairman. And Mrs. Samurai, and we run MasterSamuraiTech.com and Appliantology.org. Yes, we do, and you sound a little better than last week. Yeah, I've got a a little huskiness still, but oh, much better than last week. You are husky. Oh, yes. You are a husky girl. (laughs) No, no, not really. She's not really husky, but... Anyway, just subscribe to us on iTunes or on our YouTube channel. I encourage you to tell your friends about us. And, uh, you know, if you, actually, also, if you leave a review on iTunes, it also helps promote the podcast and get the word out. If you like what we're doing here, you can help us keep on keeping on keeping on. That's right. All right. So let's uh, start off with some site news. We got some exciting site news. Yes. We have a live event coming up next week. Coming up this Thursday, October 22nd at 8 p.m. Eastern Time. We're having another webinar. It's been a little bit since we've had a webinar because we had a number of, well, crazy summer, mm-hmm. crazy with service calls, refrigerator season, all that stuff. But uh, we were doing webinars a little earlier before the summer got crazy. And now we're, we're, things are slowing down a little bit as far as the service calls go. So got a little more time to start doing these webinars again. And we've got one coming up this Thursday on schematic foo. You know, like kung fu? Mm-hmm. Schematic foo. Oh, yeah. The ancient samurai art of using tech sheets as deadly weapons. So what we're going to do, the idea with this one, is that I'm going to have... I'm going to be prepared to talk about uh, like three different tech sheets um, for specific actual current production products. And we'll see how, how, how much we actually get through, but I'll be prepared to talk about it as, as up to three. We'll, we'll have an hour. Right. Uh, lasts about an hour. So we'll go. And the idea is I'm going to actually put up the tech sheet. We're going to go through it. We're going to look at how to use the tech sheets, how to extract maximum information from that tech sheet to figure out what's going on with the appliance, how to read the schematic that's on the tech sheet. So when I talk about tech sheet, everybody understand, I'm talking about the sheet course the manufacturer puts out, and they call it various names, fast track, mini manual, wiring sheet, and whirlpool's case. I don't know why they call it that, but um, tech sheet in general to me, as I use that as a general term, to mean the sheet that has specifications, some kind of product description, maybe it's got the diagnostic key dance entry for talking to the control board, and the schematic. So that's when I say, when I'm talking about a tech sheet, I'm talking about the all-inclusive mm-hmm. document. That is the go-to document in preparation for and in use in troubleshooting any appliance. So we're going to be going through hopefully three of those today. And I got um, one of them's like a Samsung. Not today. Next Thursday. Next Thursday. Right. Sorry. Um, but one of them's a Samsung washer. I got a fancy Electrolux Proline double wall oven and got something else. But anyway... Uh, surprises like that. So hope everybody can join us. Uh, if you are a Samurai Tech Academy student or if you are a professional appliantologist at Appliantology, you know, a professional appliantologist member, this is free for you. So, um, and it's only free, so there's no, if you're not in one of those two groups, then you, you can't um, get access to the webinar. Sorry, unfortunately, but. But you can easily become one of those two groups. Exactly. So keep hope alive. <laughs> yes. There is hope for you. You can go and enroll in the Samurai Tech Academy and learn all that stuff you've been needing to learn. That's right. So if you guys uh, get our newsletter uh, or on one of our newsletter lists, you would have gotten this announcement in your email. So if you haven't opened it yet. 
look for that and then you can find all the details there. Right. And we've also posted the announcement at our Facebook page. It's not been shown a whole lot. It's also if you go to appliantology.org on the homepage, look in the right hand column and you'll see the calendar entry lit up there. But you know, this business with um, doing webinars um, kind of gets me thinking about the state of training in general. In fact, we get asked uh, asked a lot about, oh, well, what about hands-on training and, you know, manufacturers training and mm-hmm. um, don't, I, don't I really need to get that? And Yeah, because as much as we're about learning the fundamentals and troubleshooting and all that, yes, you still need to know how to actually tear down the machine, get to, you know, do that kind of quote hands-on work right and so it it made me think about the state of appliance product training today you know this manufacturer training or you know you go to convention i'm sure most of you guys almost everybody listening has been to at least one manufacturer training and the format is all the same so there's a bunch of guys in a room a bunch of techs in a room like at a hotel conference room or something the manufacturer has shipped in product uh, one, two, or more uh, pieces of equipment to, to for the techs assembled there to be able to disassemble and play, practice beep beeps on the touchpad and that kind of thing. So you go through, you got an, like an hour or so of a PowerPoint presentation, and then there's a bunch of time spent where everybody crowds around the appliance and does disassembly. I'm assuming if you don't have a good spot, then you're not learning too much. Right. About so what ends? What exactly? And so what ends? The dynamic is the guys up front. They they tend to get they're there and doing some things. Maybe they'll go back and some other but go uh, somebody else will move up and disassemble some things. Meanwhile, everybody, most of the uh, techs congregate towards the back and they're just sort of hoo-hawing and chatting with each other. That's great as sort of a like a social type of thing, but. As a training experience, I think it's very inefficient. I think it's grossly wasteful. I mean, you look at the expense to ship product in. Okay, now you're thinking, mm-hmm. well, what's the alternative? <laughs> Hello, YouTube. <laughs> you know, in this day and age of YouTube and Vimeo and all these videos um, out there, and you know, the, some of the manufacturers are even making videos, but even third-party videos, like from Repair Clinic, Appliance Parts Pros, mm-hmm. some of those disassembly videos they have are just fantastic, just phenomenal. Right. You can often see detail on those that you miss if you're live and, right. and don't have the perfect spot. And you can watch it and review it and go back and what did he do there? Uh, so disassembly compared to the, the actual troubleshooting part and the theory of operation, the disassembly part of it is really the simplest part of it. And in this day and age of YouTube, that stuff can be covered with videos. So now I ask you, my brethren, why in this day and age of YouTube are we persisting with this outmoded, in my opinion, model of product training where pro- product is shipped in to like a, a hotel at great expense Mm-hmm. And and then and then there's a bunch of time wasted during the training for guys to tear the stuff down. I would you know to, my preference would be I want to learn from the manufacturer the stuff that can only be learned from the manufacturer. Theory of operation, inputs and outputs, how these two boards are talking to each other, or five boards, or whatever there is on that product. Mm-hmm. I want to know all about that stuff and and the flow of information through that appliances because we're dealing with in modern appliances we are dealing with computers that do appliance functionality. Right. So the whole idea of disassembly uh, is really kind of the trivial aspect of that and the easier part to master. And you can, you can just load up a video on your iPad and take it with you to the service call. But you need to understand how that appliance works and you need to understand the technology you're working with. In some cases, we're dealing with new technology and you've got to understand that. That's the kind of stuff I want to learn from the manufacturer. Right. 
Now, in your own experience, in the 90s, when you started doing appliance repair, you, you came to the trade with a big background in electricity and electronics and troubleshooting, but had never worked on appliances. Yep. And we didn't have YouTube then. Did you just go to a lot of manufacturer training to learn all the hands-on stuff? Didn't go to a nary a one. I didn't think so. No, I, went, I didn't go to a single manufacturer training. So instead, what I did is somewhere online, I, I you know, back in the early woolly de- it wasn't no it, it wasn't even wasn't online, online no. it was from appliance service news the the printed magazine back then and there was this outfit in there that had vhs videos they it wasn't even internet related this was early 90s no internet to speak of back mm-hmm. then and i ordered some videos like uh, may maytag washers maytag dry, you know the the common stuff that was out back then and what I needed that for was for disassembly, how to take it apart. Now, of course, you can get this out of printed service manuals and stuff like that, but I didn't have access to that stuff. I wasn't on, you know, a quote, authorized servicer, so I didn't have access to the, to the and it was all printed manuals. It wasn't PDFs back then mm-hmm. either. So uh, Homie didn't have any of that stuff. So all I had was the, v, was, was the VHS set that I bought, uh, just some private company that just produced these things and they filmed them. And then, I, I have great memories of our kids were really little at, during this time, and I'd be, you know, hanging out with the kids or, you know, feeding the baby or whatever. And Scott would just come screaming back in and pop in a video, fast forward to find the right spot. Right, disassembly spot, right? Yep, and well, watch it. And Well, because it, it would, the dynamic would go, I'd be in the middle of a, of, of a job, you know, troubleshooting. And, you know, I had this I, open enough to, to get the schematic, but then there was the rest of it you had to get to. I could figure out how the thing worked. What I could not figure out in a lot of times was the proper disassembly. And um, so once I, f- and then I would go, oh, I forgot a tool. And then I'd run back to the house, watch that video and, and sort of maybe, maybe even make notes on what to do next and then go back do the disassembly and complete the repair. You know, if I had the schematic, which was almost always back then was usually still in the appliance and mm-hmm. guys weren't stealing them as much back then because they didn't even know to look for them. I right. So, but and so, and then I would, I was be able to use that schematic that was tucked away in there and get it fixed. And so that, so it worked out good. But the point is that that if I had an iPad back then and I could load up a video, there wouldn't have been that oh I forgot a tool moment oh, and, sure. and, and screeching back to the house so I could watch a video. And I don't, you don't need a whole lot of time spent learning the disassembly. You know, you watch a video, you do it once, you got it. So I think that the hands-on aspect of training today is overrated. Right. I, I think it's it's misused in, in a lot of the actual training. I think the teardown training is uh, no longer, it's no longer exclusive because you can get that online. Mm-hmm. So you don't need to, yeah, that, that's so Right, I mean, we, we, you know, in, in doing what we do, we increasingly see how efficient and inexpensive it is to get across all the relevant needed information to the techs via the internet you know it's and, total and, game changer right i mean you look at the stuff the, the videos the quality of videos the quality and detail of videos that are available out there today it's it's mind-blowing and that's and so that's freely available to to everybody who has an internet connection and but what is not what is harder to learn the difficult part to learn is the actual troubleshooting the figuring out what problem needs to be replaced when you tear it apart. A lot of guys are really good at tearing stuff apart and putting it back together, but they're not so good or they have trouble with figuring out why you're tearing it apart and what is the part that is bad to necessitate 
tearing apart the appliance. So that's why I think that um, we can change. I, I want to just put out there and, and try to, you guys are all in into this because you're listening to this on a podcast. So you've incorporated the uh, use of the internet as a tool in your service business. But we, we want to put that, put that word out there mm-hmm. that not hands-on, but brains-on. There you go. Because I think that there's a, a lot of guys, are people we talk to looking at getting training, they're really concerned about hands-on training. There is a place for that. You got to know how to use tools. Oh, sure. You know, you, you've got you've to have basic manual skills and dexterity and things like that. But really, it's troubleshooting and then watch a few videos. You got it. And then it's just practice. Right. Right. Now, if I could, I just wanted to say we do think that there is value in periodic live gatherings for uh, with the trade uh, we for example and really enjoy going to asti the annual service training institute that united servicers puts on because it's not just training i mean there is some training but it's the, the networking it's, oh yeah it's the connections the the meeting other your other brethren in the craft from around the country right. uh, all the business topics yeah. the trade show with you know just you, you get exposed to a lot so there is a place for a live gathering you real you come to realize i mean i think a lot of times that we as servicers we, we kind of live in our own little universe because we're so wrapped up in our our local service calls and things like that but and you realize, and, and everybody's sort of doing that, kind of in that um, that that blind, got your blinders mm-hmm. on, tunnel vision type of thing. But then you realize, when you go to these conventions, you realize there's a lot of other guys doing it, but really not that many. The industry is not really that big. Mm-hmm. It's easy to get to know people in the industry. So you you meet like at the conventions, you meet, uh, you know, the trainers from the manufacturers, and and. and these are people you'll see them over and over again. Right. So it's really kind of cool. You you get to know your your little industry that you're working in. Yep. Yep. So no, there is definitely a value in in-person uh, live training, and the big part of it is the other people that are there in attendance. Right. So, all right, moving on from that aspect of it, we sort of rift on the um, on appliance training in general from our talking about our webinar that's coming up this Thursday. But then uh, we wanted to talk about, we've gotten lots of questions from uh, listeners and students at the academy uh, pertaining to pricing, uh, pay, getting paid. Terms of service. Yeah. Uh, customer selection. Right. Um, one in particular, you know, Lazaro uh, called me, one of our, one of our uh, students at the academy um, called me uh, the other day, and he was having, he's been having problems. He works for a lot of property managers, got six techs working for him, having a lot of problems with, um, with the uh, customers, the property manager customers, uh, paying him on time. He's Not got, paying him on time is the problem, right? Yes, that's exactly right. Well, And so, you know, say his terms of service are 15 days. So maybe these guys are stringing him out 30, 45, 60 days to pay, uh, to pay him. Meanwhile, he's got payroll to meet. Yeah, and so he's got he's got these chronic cash flow problems. Um, how do you handle that? Well, number one, and this is this idea of customer selection. You need to figure out when you fire your customer. Mm-hmm. Not every customer is worth having. Some customers cost you more money. There's a strategic angle to this too. And what type of customer base do you build your business upon? And if you're going to build it on property managers, look, my opinion of property managers, I kind of think of them as the scourge of our industry. Uh, I know that's kind of strong, but that's been my experience with them. I think that they're, they're, only, they're always trying to commoditize 
appliance service businesses and they will commoditize your business as well. What that means is there is no space in their brain for you to differentiate your service from your competitor service by offering prompter service or a clean uniform, whatever, better train techs. They don't care about that. Property managers care about one thing, cheap, cheap, cheap. They want that, that number that you're going to charge them to be as small as possible. That's it, period, end of story. And then they want to take forever to pay you. Mm-hmm. So I, I think strategically, it's kind of a, it's a mistake to build your business on a customer base consisting of property managers. Having them in the mix as a, as a small percentage, that's not so bad, but they need to be kept on a tight leash. And so, for example, uh, if, if they're not adhering to your terms of payment, you know, whether it's 15, 30 days, whatever, um, you need to fire them. Just flat out fire them. First of all, why are you, and that's the other thing too, is why extend credit to them? So in other words, a lot of guys feel like they need to, oh yeah, I'll just send you an invoice. Well, why would you do that? You're effectively extending them credit without doing any kind of credit report on them. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you go to bar and they're borrowing, they're, they are effectively borrowing money from you. They're borrowing your labor from you. I would, why would you let them do that without any kind of background check or anything? Oh, well, they're established in the area. Yeah, well, it, um, if, if you go to a bank, it doesn't matter if it's an established business in the area. They go to a bank to borrow money. They're going to have a credit check run on them. I, you know, for, personally, for in this day and age of credit cards and Square and PayPal, there's no reason to have to extend credit to people old school and send out invoices. If a property manager wants you to go out and do something, they, they could keep a credit card on file with you and you just charge it as you go out. Uh, or they pay you in advance and pay you a retainer. Um, and if they don't like it, let them walk. Let them go somewhere else and, and start building your business based on other customers. Um, you got anything to add on that? Well, just, yes, be careful of building a business on property managers because then you are you get nervous about losing their business because particularly if you have employees and payroll to meet. Right. So, and they're yeah. always they're always ready to, to let you go too because they're they're always shopping around for who's going to do it the cheapest, so they don't have any particular loyalty to you. So that that's my uh, some of my input on that issue. But then this leads into another question that a lot of guys have, and that is, well, how much should you be charging for repairs? A lot of guys will uh, they figure they set their pricing like this. They go, mm, okay, I'm going to call Fred's or or Tom's or you know whoever the uh, other the competitor is in his area and see what he's charging to I don't know change out a drive coupler on a Whirlpool Direct Drive to I don't know, some, something whatever it is just some representative task and then they'll go okay I'll charge just a little bit less or they'll see what what is what is he charging to go out on a service call and I'll charge just a little bit less or about the same um, and I think that's that's completely backwards because oh, yeah. <laughs> that's you're setting the prices without any realization of what your actual costs of doing business are. Mm-hmm. And that's where you begin with setting your prices because this is going to determine a whole lot of things for you. And your, your costs of doing business consist of two categories, fixed costs and variable costs. Okay, your fixed costs are things that don't change regardless of the number or type of service calls that you're running. So it's things like your insurance auto insurance, liability insurance, et cetera. Um, advertising. Uh, what else? Some other Your vehicle. Here? Yeah, vehicle call. If you got any kind of charges associated with that. Well, like, yeah. What payments that Payments you're on it, not gas. Or, or if you're doing leasing, your, your monthly payment, whatever you're paying mm-hmm. on that. Uh, if you have an office, it would be office rent. Right. It's important just to go back to what you said. It, I, we're talk, when we're talking about vehicle charges, we're talking about the lease or the, the payment 
the monthly payment, not the variable component of the vehicle right. cost, which would be gasoline. That's going to vary according to the number mm -hmm. and distance of service calls that you're running. So that's one of the variable costs. Got ahead a little bit. But fixed costs are things, but you get the idea with fixed costs. They don't change with the number of service calls that you're doing. They're just a part of your cost of even having your doors open and putting your lights on. Mm -hmm. And any of your other, like internet expenses, any of your other costs yeah. that go into running your business. Your variable costs are things that vary with each service call. The biggest one being your parts, right? So you, you, you don't run mm -hmm. many service calls. Your parts costs are going to be very low. Uh, it's also going to be your gas. Mm -hmm. um, so, and there could, there could be other things like that. But uh, United Servicers website has a cost of doing business calculator that you should download and use that and figure out what your actual costs of doing business are. Fixed and variable costs. Right. And what a lot of people <clears throat> don't include in their cost is the cost of saving for your retirement yep insurance and providing health insurance for your family these are these are your part of your fixed cost right don't you know a lot of guys they think well my wife's a teacher and i'm on her health insurance right. well that's great but you're, you're, your business should be a standalone business we've made the, we've made this point before the I point think, yeah we have but the the, and the point there if, if uh somebody's running an appliance service company and they're actually getting their health insurance through their wife's job um they are effectively subsidizing their customers. Mm -hmm. So you're, you're giving your customers a, uh, you know, a discount. Right, right. Because you're not accounting for that cost in your, in your cost structure. Um, what that means is then, so knowing your fixed and variable costs. In other words, this, you know that I need to charge this much to even go out and do this job. And so, well, so now let's take this. You know what it is. It costs me X to go do this. Well, now this property management wants me to go out and fix all of the air conditioners at this apartment unit, and he's only going to charge me something less than X, or, or um, pay me something less than X. He won't let me charge what I really need to charge. What, knowing your fixed and variable costs now, you can clearly see that you are losing money on each job that you do for them. Mm -hmm. Or at the very least, it means that you're losing out on money that you could have been making if you're working for regular customers for the you know this for the right. cod uh, regular cod customers you know individuals who call you from uh you know your your google ad or whatever so uh, that's the difference it, it, having those numbers becomes sort of one of your flying metrics that help guide you in what decisions you'll make and what jobs you'll do and what customers you'll, you'll work for right i mean you may <laughs> actually be able to determine that you can do a certain percent of property management, maybe 10% of your work could be, if there's one you like to work with and they throw a lot of work your way and it's kind of convenient because you can do a whole bunch of jobs in one day, right. then it, that might make sense, but you have to just examine it very critically. Right. And you have to have the, the basis upon which to examine that is the numbers. You have mm -hmm. to know what your numbers are. And if there's always exceptions. I mean, there's always, you know, you've got a personal relationship or a long history with some particular property manager or he's different from the rest. Yeah, yeah, that, 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 that stuff exists. I'm not saying, I'm just saying as a group in general, mm -hmm. property managers are not good customers. They're definitely not good customers to build, to have as the majority basis of your customer base for building your business on. Right. Now, I do think that running these financial numbers, it, it's... It, you know, it's fairly complicated, and you mentioned there's online help at United mm -hmm. Services' website. It's definitely something where a little outside help is a great idea, whether you use their tools, um, a small business accountant, or the, the other way to go is to use uh, flat rate pricing. 
or job rate pricing. Right, and that's that is because what happens, and that's what we use. We mm-hmm. use we use the um, online blue book. the The nice thing with that, and I have compared it with our actual, because I know what our fixed and variable costs are, and I have compared the the blue book rates to, and, and what it does is it becomes like uh, a broad brush way to cover your fixed and variable costs and make sure that you know, you're making a little money on each job so that you, you can continue to offer your service, right? But you can also adjust the rates in the blue book so that it falls more in line with your fixed and variable costs. It's gonna be different for you based on where you are in, your con- in the country, where you, what your service area is right. like. cost of living varies a lot. Right, and uh, actually even the number of service calls that you do. So if you live in a very busy area where you just slam with service calls, your fixed costs per job as a percentage, goes way down. If you're, um, if you live in an area where it's much less populated, very rural, and you're not doing as many service or seasonal. calls, or seasonal, exactly, mm-hmm. or a tourist area, like where we live, um, and, and your fixed costs per job goes way up, and so that has to be accounted for in in your pricing structure, and you can do that in the in the online blue book, and so th- and then it allows you to to just calculate a complete job rate up front and quote that to the customer. So. There's some, uh, there's an, a benefit there, and just so er, there's full disclosure. Everybody knows what's going on every step of the way, and there's no surprise bills at the end. And all my costs are covered. Um, customers getting good service. I'm making some money. Everybody's happy. So there, there's a lot more we want to talk about in this area. Yeah. So I think we'll continue this conversation about, you know, in general pricing, terms of service, customer selection, all that kind of thing. Yeah, there are a lot of angles and aspects to this. So, And I know it's uh, some uh, a subject that a lot of you guys are very interested in. So keep the questions coming. Yes. Give us feedback on this. Let us know what other aspects of this area you'd like to hear us talk about. And uh, we will do that. So I think right now, let's go ahead and take a break. Uh, and um, we will take a short break and be right back. We got coming up here in the Tech Talk section, just to give you a little preview we're going to talk about troubleshooting, what it is and what it is not, and how to do it. And we're going to also give a specific, we're going to talk about circuits here, a particular type of circuit configuration, and we're going to debunk a, uh, a particular misconception that people, Ooh, yeah. Debunking. So, yeah, but we're going to be using a simple series circuit, like in a, a heating circuit in an oven. So we'll come back and get into that. So big segment on Tech Talk coming up. So stay with us. Hey, all Scott here for Samurai Tech Academy at MasterSamuraiTech.com. Modern appliance repair requires true technicians who can troubleshoot their high-tech electronics. If you're young and looking to make some real money, or you've been at it a while and just need to keep your skills up to date, Samurai Tech Academy teaches it all. And they'll also show you the business, how to own and run your own. Take a free sample course to see how easily you can learn appliance repair from MasterSamuraiTech.com. Use coupon code Scott Horton for 10% off any course or set of courses at MasterSamuraiTech.com. All right, welcome back, my friends. You are listening to Master Samurai Tech Radio, and this is the Tech Talk section. Yes. One everybody waits for and loves and, well, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> we like to think so. Well, um, so one of the things I wanted to talk about in this section, in this, in this episode of Tech Talk, is troubleshooting. I found that a lot of guys don't know what troubleshooting is. They'll go out, they'll think, oh, well, I saw a problem with this washer, and I'd seen this problem before, so, and I re- back then I replaced this part, so I'll do that again this time. 
And that fixed it. So and that's they think that's troubleshooting. Or that part didn't work. So, okay, then it must be the next cause I know of for this. I'm right. going to try this part. And that's, that's in, the, in the technical sense of the word, that is not troubleshooting. That's, it, it could be pattern recognition. It's trial and error. It's heuristics, which is rules of thumb. But it's not really troubleshooting. And troubleshooting is following a logical cause and effect chain of reasoning to its ultimate conclusion in identifying the problem. So, and to do troubleshooting as technicians, and we're talking about technical troubleshooting now, we, are, we do things like we check inputs and outputs for a component, right? And we compare those inputs and outputs with the specifications uh, that, are, that are provided to us, which means that those specs do need to be given to us. We need to know what we're checking against. What's right. the expected reading? Or what's the specified reading? And so, so sometimes it won't be overtly given to us. Sometimes we have to calculate it. Sometimes we have to infer it based on uh, how we can, you know, reading schematics or understanding the technology. Right. But there's enough given that we have to be able to compare what we're seeing with what sh we should be seeing. Does that make sense? So, yes. So um, <laughs> the key here is, and this is, what, this is the essence of what we do as technicians, Checking inputs and outputs, compare with specifications to determine if a component is out of spec or not. So, what's the key with that? The key with that is to have those specs. Yep. Beyond that, it's to recognize when you're when you don't have enough information to right. solve it. And this is kind of this is kind of a little more subtle because you know it's a lot more tricky to recognize something that's omitted than it is to recognize something that's there, but maybe is incorrect. Exactly. Yeah, you know what it's I mean? hard to know what's not there. It's kind of like knowing what you don't know. Right. Well, it's hard to look at a sheet exactly. of specs and, and know with confidence what's, what's missing. It's the great unsaid. That's, <laughs> that's the difficult thing. It's, it's the thing, if they're not mentioning it anywhere in the, in the tech sheet or anything like that, it's like, how do I even know that this is an omitted item? Right, and one thing we've learned over the years is that there are a lot of omissions that are not deliberate. There's no good reason for it. Because right. I think you can assume that, oh, well, if it's not there, I don't need to know it. Oh. Right. For well, whatever reason, it's often missing. Well, a lot of times what's going on, and we, we see this a lot with uh, Whirlpool and uh, Electrolux products in particular, you will see, like, for example, in Whirlpool, just use them as an example. I see this a lot. They'll have multiple t uh, control boards in a refrigerator. And they will not give you, they'll show the lines, how the lines connect to the different boards. They may even give the little labels for them and show the wire color, of course. But what are they not giving you in there? A lot of times they're not giving you what the expected readings should be on those lines. So they don't give you enough data. And this is, this is true from a few years ago. But they don't give you enough data to be able to, for the specifications I'm talking about, to be able to tell, is this board operating within specifications or not? Because that's the essence of how you tell if something mm -hmm. is bad or not. You check inputs. If it, if, so if a component, a box or whatever, a board, a, a part, it doesn't matter what it is. It's, all, it's the same for anything. It's, it, you check, is it getting good inputs? If it is, then is it getting good outputs? Is it giving good outputs? Well, if it's getting good inputs, all the inputs are good, but it's not giving good outputs, then either there's something downstream that's affecting it, like another board that's loading down a DC data line, for example. But if that's not the case, you've ruled that out, then you've got a, that component that you're checking is bad. That's the deduction. That's the deductive process that we do as technicians. So we have to recognize when we don't have sufficient information to 
draw the conclusion that something is bad. Um, one example is, um, you know, Justin ran into this uh, not too long ago. We were talking about it in a Frigidaire dishwasher. Was it the main control or the display panel? And they didn't give enough information to be able to check the output of just the main control or check the input of just the dis display board. My MO in these types of situations, when the manufacturer does not give me enough information and I get my troubleshooting down to, uh, say, two boards or whatever, my MO, and the manufacturers decided in their infinite wisdom, oh, he doesn't need to know all of the details of, how the, of what these boards are inputting and outputting. Okay, my troubleshooting stops in at those two boards mm -hmm. because that's effectively the manufacturer telling me, you know what? You, you poor dumb appliance tech, you're you can't handle the truth here. You can't handle the details of what's going on here. So, yeah, you get down here. That's close enough, buddy. You just go ahead and and replace both those poor boards for the customer. Yeah, have a nice life. <laughs> <laughs> so, They're ultimately messing with the customer. They this are is not and, doing them any service. And what's happening here? I started to say this earlier. What's happening here with like Whirlpool and Frigidaire? They're outsourcing a lot of their electronics. So. You go back in the arc of time, right? So Whirlpool, Frigidaire, GE, these are old-time appliance companies. They, were, they would make these appliances that had discrete mechanical components. wasn't an electronic board to be found anywhere mm -hmm. in, that, in that component. And the troubleshooting proceeded exactly as I was saying. It was easy to go through and do your analog troubleshooting, checking inputs and output voltages everywhere. And it was just simple. You're working with line voltage. No big deal. What happened, though is that the Energy Star requirements came along and started cranking down the amount of energy and water that appliances could use. Well, the only way that they could comply with these new requirements was to incorporate these computer controls to micromanage the amount of energy and water that they're using in appliances. Whirlpool, Frigidaire, GE, they're all latecomers to the electronics game. So they're outsourcing all of that stuff. So you've got some other company somewhere that's do, putting together these single board computers for these, for these other, the Whirlpool, GE, Frig, uh, Electrolux, using some examples. And then they're supplying documentation. Well, you've got one party supplying stuff to another party that's then making stuff available to us as technicians and information. Stuff gets lost in translation or gets dropped in transcription. Um, a lot of times Whirlpool in-house doesn't know exactly what's going on with the, the electronics because it's all been, it's all been outsourced. Compare that situation with Samsung and LG. Right, who were originally electronics companies. Exactly. So they're, they're old-time electronics companies that are Johnny-come-latelys, relatively speaking, to the appliance business. Well, the appliance end of things is actually relatively simple compared to the computer controls that are going on now. But like GE and, uh, I'm sorry, LG and Samsung, they've got that stuff dialed in. They've got the electronics dialed in. No, no, uh, you know, yeah, they're, they're, I'm saying they're perfect, but that's all done in-house is what I'm telling right. you. And so that the information is available. And if you can get through the core English, a lot of times it's much more detailed and plentiful than what you're going to get out of stuff that's coming out of the other manufacturers who have to outsource all the electronic control. Right. And so what, and then Samsung and LG, then they, they do the rest with compressors and heating elements and all that kind of stuff to actually do the appliance end of the computer mm -hmm. that they've put together. So that's, that's the, um, the difference in there, what's going on there. And might uh, I offer that as way of explaining why sometimes, uh, particularly some of the Whirlpool stuff that we've seen out there, there were, there were refrigerators with like a dozen different control boards in it. And it was just so bare of technical specifications to actually test which board is bad. 
And I think that's why, because right. of all the outsourcing that went on. But so the, the key thing I want to get across here is this idea of knowing what troubleshooting is, because if you do that, then you, and that process, that troubleshooting process, then you'll be able to recognize, wait a minute, I've got more unknowns than I do equations, you know, is, right. like in algebra. I've got too many unknowns here, and, and there's, there's no way I can distinguish past these two boards or whatever it is that's, uh, to tell which exact one is the problem. That's, that's why I bring this up here, is knowing when you are shorted on information, right. knowing when the manufacturer has, not, has omitted key information from that's, you. That's an important mindset just to be on the lookout for. Right. So, okay, I wanted to get that across. Hopefully that's helpful. And then I wanted to just go on and talk about, uh, uh, here's a little circuit thing that I wanted to talk about with you guys. I was at a manufacturer training, it was last year at ASTI in New Orleans. And I hesitate to say the, the name because they were really putting it out. And, I, and I, overall, I like the manufacturer a lot. And, you know, well, they're American manufacturers. So, okay, I won't say the manufacturer's name because I like them. But they were putting out this meme, M-E-M-E, uh, -E, mm -hmm. um, which was saying that for there was a problem that they've been having with the DLB relay on their ranges. That's the double line brake relay, right? All ranges have a DLB relay. And the solder joint on the relay board, the DLB relay on the relay board, the solder joint for that relay w was burning out. They were having lots of problems with it burning out. And so the explanation they came up for this is when you see this, then you need to check the power connections at the junction box, you know, right before the range, where the, the range pigtail uh, comes out or conduit goes out to the uh, 4x4 junction box and connects with line power from the house. And you need to look for that because if there is a bad connection there or if there's an aluminum to copper connection, make an, it make, can make a high resistance connection there. And, they, and, and that's just true. That part of it is absolutely true. You, if you have a bad connection, especially if it's like copper to aluminum, those two metals hate each other. You've mm -hmm. got to treat them specially. There's got to be some special goop in there so that the metals don't just kill each other over time. But if, if that splice is not done correctly, and they're often not, I see a lot of that done poorly around here, um, then it will cause problems. You will get a high, high resistance connection there. And it's going to cause other problems that you know like the connections will burn i mean you, lots of different things can go on when you get a, a high resistance connection what they were saying though is that that high resistance connection which does form that it causes the dlb relay solder joint on the relay board to burn out because that high resistance connection in the power junction box was causing the circuit to draw more current when the oven was running and that's complete BS. Oh, really? Oh, total BS. Let's think about this. Let's think about the. You can imagine this as a simple series circuit. So, electric range, you got an electric heating element, just say it's standard 32 ohm heating element. And let's say in series with that, you have your high resistance connection. Uh, your high resistance connection in the in the power junction box, right? Mm -hmm. So, and it doesn't have to be. When I say high resistance connection, I'm talking about something as little as five ohms can produce like about 200 watts worth of heat. Well, you ever put your hand on a 200 watt light bulb? 
It will burn. Oh, and yeah. you can go through and use Ohm's Law and calculate this. I wondered when we'd hear about yes. Ohm's Law. <laughs> Our buddy Ohm's Law. So if we have the simple series circuit with two resistors in it, in series with each other, the high resistance connection, and let's just call it 5 ohms, and then the heating element itself, which 30, uh, uh, what 32 ohms, I said. But it's a 240-volt circuit, right? 240 volts AC, mm -hmm. electric bake element, 32 ohms on the element, 5 ohms on the high-resistance connection. Now let's think about Ohm's law. E is equal to I times R. E, electromotive force, voltage, represented by the letter E in equations, but unit of volts that when we measure it, is equal to I, which stands for current, and represented, we use units of amps for that, times resistance, letter R in the equation. So E is equal to I times R. Well, if you, you can also turn that around and say that uh, current is equal to Voltage divided by resistance. So I is equal to E divided by R. All right, so in that equation, then uh, the voltage is 240 volts AC, and the resistance is 32 plus 537 ohms. Now, let's just kind of visualize in your mind. If you increase 37 ohms, and it's in the denominator, let's say it goes up to 45 ohms. What happens to current? If, if current is equal, remember we talked about PTC, NTC, positive temperature coefficient, negative temperature, in, inversely related, directly related. We say that current is inversely related to resistance, meaning that as resistance increases, current decreases. Mm -hmm. So if you have this little series circuit, right, you got 32 ohms on the bake element and the current is one thing, 240 divided by 32, but now you add that uh, high resistance connection of 5 ohms, say, just for example, and, and now the resistance goes up to 37 ohms, your current in that circuit has to go down, right? It, mm -hmm. it, it has, it, in fact, it does go down. It, it goes it, only a little bit because we're only talking about adding a 5 ohm connection to it. But, and, and of course, your voltage supply stays constant. What then makes that DLB relay solder joint burn out? Well, think about it, because now you've got that 5 ohm uh, resistance in there, and it's dropping some of the, the voltage that would ordinarily be, supply, be dropped all across the bake heating element. Mm -hmm. So now instead of dropping all that 240 volts across the bake heating element, because you've got a 240 volt supply, if there was a single load in there, the, the, just the bake element, you would drop all that 240 volts across that element. Right. But with that high resistance connection now in series with the element, you're dropping... Uh, most of the voltage across the element still because it's bigger, 32 ohms. But you're also dropping some of the voltage across that high resistance connection. Okay. Which means some of the wattage, some of the power that, that and you know, the element produces heat and we measure that in terms of power, right, watts. Um, so, and some of that wattage is being lost across that heating element. Remember before I said that a little, as little as five you mean ohms. across that high resistance? Across that high resistance connection. Thank you. Thank you. Yes. So, so now some of that is being dropped across that high resistance connection. Now, remember I said that a connection, you can run through the numbers on this, as little as 5 ohms is in a, in a 240 volt AC circuit in series and, and you know, running a bake element. It could produce as much as 200 watts, mm -hmm. maybe a little more. That's a lot of heat. So that 200 watts that's now being dropped across that loose connection in that high resistance, loose connection, or whatever is defective with it that's making it be 5 ohms, 
that wattage subtracts from the wattage that should be produced by the heating element. What does this mean? That means now it's taking a little bit longer. The, the element's not producing as much heat, so it's taking a little bit longer for the, the oven cell to come up to temperature. The control board is monitoring cell temperature through the sensor. And it's, and it's saying, oh, we still got to keep it running, got to keep it running. Well, now what's happening is the control board is causing the uh, element to stay on longer in order to satisfy the temperature requirement that's been dialed in by the user, right? So uh, now instead of, instead of taking, say, 12 minutes to preheat, maybe it takes 24 minutes. I'm just using that as an example to give you the idea that the problem is it's not drawing more current, it's staying on longer. And so current is flowing through that DLB relay joint for longer periods of time uh, than mm -hmm. it should be. Mm -hmm. And it's just not rated to withstand the current draw for that long period of time. That's the problem that they got going on. It's not one of more current. It's actually less current, but for much longer periods of time because mm -hmm. of that lost wattage that's now we're, we're dropping some watts across that loose connection, which leaves less available to actually do the work of heating the cell by the element. Ohm's law makes it all clear. It does. And yet you know, again, it's, it's like what I keep saying. We understand electricity in exactly two ways, math and measurements. The math, we, we can't see it. So we can only understand how it works and what it does by the math. And that's simple math we're talking about, Ohm's law. And then we do the measurements because it makes it real to us. So, and this is just, you got to go, go back. When you ever have these types of questions, you got to think, how would I frame this in terms of Ohm's law? Because that defines everything about current, voltage, resistance, and power relationships in any of the circuits that we work on as appliance techs. That's right. All right, so I, I don't hope, hope that was clear. I know that kind of uh, maybe got a little muddled. It's difficult to do, too, as, as a purely audio thing. It'd be nice to do as a, like a visual. That'd be a good webinar, actually. All someone right. to show that, just to illustrate that to people. And, and just uh, debunk it. What was surprising about this is that here you have a manufacturer putting out. So you have this, this level of unawareness, and uh, even, even at the manufacturer's trainer's level, and, right. and they're putting out these types of this type of basically misinformation, wrong information. Just a little bit of sloppy thinking. Not only, but it, but then so it makes a lot of techs mm -hmm. who maybe don't know any better think, oh, this is the way it works, and it perpetuates what I call this tech mythology. It's just based on stories and rumors rather than based on analytical uh, tools uh, like Ohm's law um, and, and describe which exactly describe how these things really work. Right. Well, so. that is what provides your mission in life. <laughs> so anyway, um, uh, thanks for enduring that. And if you guys have any other questions or tech tip uh, topics you'd like to hear us talk about, then uh, send, pass it along to us. We'd love to um, talk about stuff that you guys want to hear us talk about. All right. So that's a wrap then for this week. I think we've um, we've got enough in here to... To call it an episode. Call it an episode. It's, it's another one done. So, well, I want to thank everybody for listening again. Thanks for downloading, listening on iTunes, Android, or YouTube channel. Really appreciate that. Encourage you to spread the word about us. Review us on iTunes and uh, help other help your brethren in the craft find out about the podcast. Yeah. Anything we can do like that, you know, rising tide lifts all boats. Get the word out there. We're trying to improve the the, the uh, entire appliance repair trade, one tech at a time. So There you go. All right. So, all right, guys. So thanks again for listening. And until next time, sayonara. Bye. <laughs>